Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you for new visiting. My name is Tyler David. I'm a downtown AM campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. To Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the service. Ephesians chapter 4. So the last two weeks, we've been continuing our study, the book of Ephesians. We've been looking at this gigantic shift from chapters 1 through 3 to chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Ephesians. What we're learning is that in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul tells us all the things God did for us. All the ways he saved us. All the ways he loved us. All the ways he reconciled us to one another. He tells us all of this and then he shifts into chapter 4 where he says, Now, now, this is how we should live. Now, this is how our lives should manifest these incredible realities. That when you see and you believe all that God has done for you, the natural response is to want to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Therefore walk in a manner manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's what we're talking about over the next couple of weeks, looking at what it looks like to live these things out. So last week we learned the very first thing that Paul says, the very first thing he says, okay, if we're going to live lives worthy of this calling, the first thing we're going to do is be a unified people. The very first thing he says, the very first thing, the essential thing, the vital thing is for the church to have unity. For the church to have unity. Because God himself is one, and he gave us one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father. We're one people. We reflect who God is in our unity. So he created this unity. Our job is to maintain this unity through humility and gentleness and patience and love with one another. Then in verse 7 today, in verse 7 you see another shift. He goes from the unity of God's people to the diversity of the gifts he gives to his people. He makes this unified people, this unified people from all over the world, this unified people, and then he gives them different gifts and roles in his church. So let's read our text together today, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. 7 through 16, here's the word of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there's a lot going on in this text. We're not going to cover all of it. There's a lot going on. But here's the main point. All that text, here's the main point. Jesus gave his church 
spiritual gifts so they would build up his church. Jesus gave you spiritual gifts so you would do the work of ministry in building up his church. And this is critical. Critical for us as the Austin Stone to understand so that we don't waste our gifts. So so that we don't receive all of these gifts and just waste them. Receive all these gifts from King Jesus and just sit on them and never use them. It's a terrible thing to see somebody who is extremely gifted never use those gifts. It's a terrible thing. It's a sad thing to watch somebody who's been incredibly gifted always be potential and never be actual. All of you have known these people. You've known people in your life who God has gifted in incredible ways. Athletes, artists, intellectuals. These people who do incredible things very easily for them. Those athletes that you knew that can make incredible plays that were easy for them. Those artists that can make beauty out of things that you couldn't even see and inspire you in ways you never thought possible. Intellectuals who can create things and write things and solve equations and that it's easy to them. They have all these gifts, all this potential, and then what do you see? We all have stories of those people slowly over time not reaching their potential. Those flashes of brilliance begin to fade and over time you see them not using those gifts. And it happens for a variety of reasons. Sometimes people don't have confidence. A tragic event happens. They don't have the work ethic needed to accomplish the things they've been called to do, whatever it may be. But they're those people that you've known in your life and you keep wondering, what if? What if? What if they actually used their gift? What could have happened? What could they have done? How could the world have benefited from their incredible gifting? We've all known those people. Some of us have maybe even been those people. But every single church, every single church is in danger of becoming people like that. Every single church is in danger of becoming people just like that. Well, you're going to see in the text that you've been given incredible gifts from Jesus himself. But if you don't act those things out, then we're always going to be a people of potential, but not actual. We're going to be a people who think that one day we could do something great, but never see it happen. As I've thought about this this week, I've wondered if the angels look at us. If the angels look at the church across the planet, and they look at this people who's been loved by God and that Jesus died for them. Jesus didn't die for the angels, he died for us. And the angels look at us and they see these people incredibly loved by God. They see these people incredibly gifted by God. And they see these people not use their gifts. I wonder if they're in heaven thinking, what if? What if these people, so loved by our God, so gifted by our God, actually did something? What if? Now, I don't know what God will do through us and through our gifts, but I don't want us to be a people left wondering, what if? What if I actually did that? What if I actually shared the gospel? What if I actually did ministry? What if? I don't want to be left wondering that at the end of my life. I want us to be a people who utilize those gifts to the best of our abilities. So I want to show you what these gifts are. Let's look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 through 11 again. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So in this text, there are two things Jesus gave to us. 
In the text it says, Jesus gave two things to us. Individual spiritual gifts, individual spiritual gifts, and spiritually gifted leaders. The two things he gave in this text are individual spiritual gifts and spiritually gifted leaders. In the midst of a unified people, you find a diversity of gifts and roles. So he says he gave those those gifts as he ascended. What does that mean? That text can be kind of confusing. He descended, he ascended. What does that mean? Well, the imagery that Paul is using is the imagery of a conquering king. He's quoting Psalm 68. And he has the image of a conquering king who defeated all of his enemies, who won the battle, who won the fight, and now he's giving to his people the treasures of his conquest, the spoils of his victory. His, this, this ascension is the idea that he already won. Now he's giving us gifts. So when it says he descended, what it's saying is Jesus left heaven and came to earth. God the Son wrapped on flesh, born of a virgin, came to earth, and also he died. It says he went into the earth. He was buried in a tomb. He died. But death could not hold King Jesus. He got up from the grave, he resurrected, and he ascended. Why? It was his victory march. It was his victory march that he had actually defeated our greatest enemies. That he had broke the shackles of shame and condemnation and guilt that our sin had fastened around us. He had silenced the lies and the deception, the accusations of our captor, Satan. He had removed the sting and the fear of death that had plagued us since Adam. See, in his death, he beat all of our foes that were too mighty for us, and his resurrection and ascension was his victory march of declaration, I indeed have won. And it says, in his victory march, he gave out gifts. He gave gifts to us. And if you have any Christian background, or you've been in the church, or you've been saved for a while, I'm sure you are familiar with the fact that God has given you a spiritual gift. We talked about it just a couple weeks ago, how God has given every Christian a spiritual gift. But I wonder if you notice in the text that the other gift he gave you, the other spiritual gift he gave you, was a spiritually gifted leaders. Spiritually gifted leaders. That what happened when you were saved, the Holy Spirit came and he gave you a gift. But it was this sort of raw material. So it's in you, it's there, he gave it to you, but you may not be using it. You may not be as effective as you could be in the kingdom. And so God gave these spiritually gifted leaders for what purpose? To equip you, to train you, to help you, to turn that raw material of gift into something useful and effective in the kingdom of God. Those are the two gifts that he gave us. I want you to notice, when he talks about our gifts in the text, Paul doesn't give us an opportunity or a way to figure out what our gift is. Usually when we think about spiritual gifts, all of us go, okay, well, what's mine? I want to figure out what that is. How, How can I take a test? Do I need to perform right now? Can I figure it out right now? But Paul, in in this part of this text, doesn't do that. He says, oh, you've been given a spiritual gift, and then moves on. In other places in the New Testament, he gives a list. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual gifts, and he gives a list. So you can know, okay, these are the gifts he's talking about. But in this text, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a list. He doesn't give us a way to distinguish what our gift is. Why? Because in this text... He's most concerned that you and I know the purpose and the function of these gifts. That you and I know the purpose, know why he gave you the gift at all. Because he gave you the gift not to define yourself by it, not to feel insecure about it. He gave you your gift to build up the body of Christ. Look at verse 7 and verse 11 and 12 again. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every single believer, every single one of us gets an individual spiritual gift. Look at verse 11. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So your individual spiritual gift, your spiritual gift to leaders, all of it. So you would do ministry. The church is not a people you belong to so you can get all of your desires and preferences met. It's not a people you belong to to have all the religious goods and services that you want given to you. The church is a people God has empowered for mission and ministry. The church is not a place where leaders do all the ministry. Leaders are the ones doing ministry, and the people's job is to, is to support them, get behind them, get out of the way and pray for them. That's not the vision of the church in Ephesians 4. The vision that Paul has, that God has, are leaders that serve and support people that train the people for their ministry for their ministry and building up the body of christ and this ministry that you've received that i've received that we have received as a people all it is is continuing the ministry of jesus all it is is continuing the ministry of jesus in this world see jesus ascended he ascended not because there was nothing left to do Jesus ascended not because there was nothing left to do. He ascended because he had purchased everything needed to accomplish the ministry of building his church. He purchased everything for us. He didn't leave because there's nothing left to do. Every single time before he leaves, he says, hey, I'm leaving. Here's your mission. I've accomplished everything. I purchased everything for you. Now go tell them. Now go tell them. There's a lot left to do. He leaves because he purchased everything needed to do it. So you know he wants us to continue his ministry because everything Jesus received for his ministry, he gave to you and to us for our ministry. Every single thing that he received for his ministry, he gave to us. So Jesus had a relationship with God the Father. He died for our sins so we could have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus had the written word of God. He had the Old Testament. He quoted it often. He taught it often. He memorized it often. He gave us the written word of God in the Old and New Testament. Jesus received the Spirit of God. He was conceived by the Spirit. At his baptism, he was empowered by the Spirit in a special way for his ministry. The day you're saved is when you receive the Spirit of God. He had the people of God all around him on mission with him, disciples with him. You've been given the people of God to do this ministry together. Every single thing that he received for his ministry, he gave to you for your ministry. So that we would continue his ministry all over the planet to every people on the planet. Now, as a people of the Austin Stone, most of us know this in theory. Most of us know this in theory. I mean, we've had a series about being the people devoted to God doing far more. Most of you are here because you, something about that vision of being a church, a people on mission together, intrigues you. Something about that biblical vision you love. But even though you may love the idea, even though you may love the concept of doing ministry, it's an entirely different thing to do that ministry. It's an entirely different thing to move from dreaming and planning and theorizing into actually doing. Here's the truth about you. Here's the truth about me. It's true about all of us. Often, we love the idea of ministry more than the act of ministry. We love the idea of ministry more than the actual act of ministry. We enjoy getting fired up. 
We enjoy those late night dreaming sessions talking about what God could do. We enjoy planning. We enjoy dialoguing about it. We even enjoy feeling convicted about it. We enjoy that more than actually doing that. And what's even crazier is that we can be deceived into thinking that because we thought about it, because we talked about it, because we dreamed about it, because we were convicted about it, that we actually did it. That we can think, because I filled out a form, I did it. Because I said I would show up, I showed up. Because I felt convicted about getting to know my neighbor, means I did it. There are a lot of reasons for this. There's a lot of reasons for this. But the most simple explanation is because it's easier. It's easier. It's easier to talk about serving than to actually serve. It's easier to feel convicted in this environment about sharing the gospel with somebody than to actually share the gospel with them. And I totally understand it because this was who I was before I came to this church. So I got saved and I got to be a part of churches and I would hear cool things. I would learn a lot. I grew a lot. I could talk a lot. And I would dream a lot about what God wanted to do through my life. I never really got involved in a church or really was on mission or in ministry. I just kind of came and learned. I would serve every now and then, but typically what would happen is I would pull out, get busy, and not stay faithful. And I can remember even in college, buddies of mine, we would talk about how one day we wanted God to use us. We would dream about one day God using us and planting a church. I can remember sitting in my uh, friend's apartment and we're talking and there is a whiteboard. We wrote down the top five cities we wanted to plant a church in. Debating about which city, sh- uh, city should be on there and which city shouldn't. Debating about it, talking about it. And then I look back and I realize all that it would take to plant a church, none of us were doing. We're talking about how God could use us one day, dreaming about our role in the church while we didn't actually play our role in the church. And so when I came to the Austin Stone about six years ago, I was working at a school in San Marcos, and I finally wanted to actually do the work of ministry, build up the body of Christ. So I joined a missional community. I started serving on setup team. And I learned something very, very quickly about ministry. It's way harder to actually do it. It's way harder to actually do it. Because one of the things I found really quickly was that when I was in this room setting up at 6 a.m., pushing things around, putting out chairs, I found myself being overwhelmed. I found myself being overwhelmed by how much sin was in me. I was so frustrated and angry because I was doing this service that no one would ever notice. That no one was applauding me for for doing. Everyone else is asleep is what I'm thinking. No one's going to applaud me for this. I'm just setting things up. And all of a sudden I saw all this sin in my heart. I can remember being in a missional community and having to have hard conversations with people that I didn't even know that well, who I had hurt by things that I said. And I had to re-explain what I meant and my intentions, and it was a difficult conversation. I can remember sitting over coffee with someone who didn't know Jesus and wanted to share the gospel with them and being terrified and cowering and not saying anything. I can remember times sharing the gospel and having zero effect. Sharing it and them going, cool, and not caring at all. All of a sudden, the theory of ministry was way better than actual ministry. See, the reason ministry is so difficult is because it's messy. It's because it's messy. The world is broken, so things don't go the way you thought they would. All the dreams and plans you had don't happen the way you thought. 
The people around you, they have sin in them. You have sin in you. There's sin in this world, so they don't respond the way they should all the time. They can be very sensitive. They can get hurt. They can be angry. And everyone changes slower than you want. And not to mention our sin. When you start doing ministry, there's sin in you that comes to the service you never knew was there. You never knew was there. That it was latent in you before you actually started serving, actually started being in the ministry. See, it's easy to feel very righteous and secure when you're watching Netflix. It is. You're like, I feel pretty good. Next show, please. Like, I feel great. It's easy to feel competent and pretty good until you actually start serving. Until you actually get in community. You actually see how insecure you really are when you see that text message. You text them something. You see the bubble come up. Go back down. No text message. You see they read it at 7.26 a.m. And you hate them in your heart. You get insecure. You start stalking them on Twitter and Facebook. What are they doing? They have access to their phone? And all of a sudden, you're like, I felt really secure and competent watching TV. Now I'm insecure. That's what happens when you actually start doing ministry. All these things you didn't know were in you begin to come out. All these insecurities, all these weaknesses, all these sins begin to come out. And you begin to think, I did not see this coming. This wasn't in the plan. When you were dreaming about possible things God could use you to do, you didn't think one of the main things would be to show you your sin. That wasn't in the plan. And we begin to think something is wrong. And when that happens, we all begin to think something's wrong. I should probably back out of this thing. But can I tell you, your ministry will be messy because Jesus' ministry was messy. Your ministry will be messy because the ministry of Jesus was messy. I mean, think about his ministry. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they planned out Jesus' ministry. They planned it out meticulously. They, it says in Galatians 3 that he came at the proper time. That was the proper and perfect time. Everything worked perfectly the way God wanted it to. God the Son said to God the Father, I submit to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to die for these people that we're going to save. We're going to display our glory this way. They had all these great dreams and ambitions and plans, but Jesus still had to do the work of ministry. He still had to wrap himself in flesh, be born of a virgin, and get into the mess of this life. He still had to bring his kingdom to the messiness this world has been ravaged by sin. Now think about his ministry. I mean, think about the highs and lows and the messiness of his ministry. He got to see people completely changed. He saw people healed of things that had bound them for decades. He saw people being destroyed by sin, repent of their sin, and start to follow him into eternal life. He also saw people that he knew and he loved completely reject him. He saw people he had grown up with say he was crazy and leave. See, he got to rejoice over the Father revealing himself to his own disciples. He prayed, Lord, I thank you. You've revealed yourself to these people. He rejoiced. In that, and he also wept bitterly when he saw his friend Lazarus die. He also wept bitterly over a city that refused to come to God, a city that he loved, a city that he said, I've been longing for you to finally come back to me, yet they refused. 
He, he knew the joy of having his friends support him in tremendous ways. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus' friends supported him financially. In Luke 8, 3, we're told that they supported him financially. So he had friends support him and care for him in really great ways. He also had friends bail on him and roll on him in his moment of greatest need. You look at his ministry, there's highs and lows, there's all sorts of mess and dysfunction. And he didn't have any sin. He had zero sin in his heart, in his life, completely perfect and righteous, and yet it was still a mess. How much messier will your ministry be because of the sin in your own heart? And Jesus says, as the Father sent me to go into the mess, be faithful in the mess, so I'm sending you. I've sent you to do the exact same thing, to be in the lives of actual hurting people, to be in the lives of the people around you in the city, to be in the lives of people across the planet and actually build up my church. And there are so many different aspects of this ministry in in the mess that we have to replicate, that we have to mimic. But the one thing that Paul emphasizes in this text, the one aspect of ministry that he emphasizes that you have to do, that I have to do, and whatever God has called us to, is speaking the truth in love. The way you build up the church is by speaking the truth in love to one another. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The way you grow into Christ-likeness and you grow into him is by speaking the truth in love. If I were to ask you, how do you grow into Christ-likeness, what would you say? I'm sure we would have many different answers. I doubt many of us would say speaking the truth in love is how you grow. In the mess of ministry, speaking the truth in love is how you grow. The reason we'd have a hard time with that because we tend to think truth and love are at odds. It tends to feel like, doesn't it, in real situations that truth and love are opposed to each other. That truth and grace are opposed to each other. That you can either be truthful or you can be loving, but you can't be both. That's why many of us kind of tend to value one more than the other. The people in here are truth people. And you want to tell people the way it is. You maybe have used a statement, I'm just being real. Because you want to speak the truth. You want to tell people what God's word says, even if it may hurt. But you do it, and there's frustration, there's anger, there's disappointment with the people you're talking to, not love. Others of us were like, no, I'm more of a love person, and I want to care for them and be compassionate and merciful. But I'm not going to tell them the truth that they're in sin. I'm not going to tell them the truth that they need to repent of that. I'm just going to love them. So for most of us, it's hard for us to understand how could these two things, truth and love, exist together? That's the unique thing about Jesus Christ, that in him both are found. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace or love and truth came through Jesus Christ. These two things. The unyielding truth of God and the unstoppable love of God exist in perfect harmony in Christ. And so if we're going to grow, if we're going to be like Christ in his ministry, we have to speak the truth in love. And in love, speak truth. We have to do both. Because this city, this church, does not just need your ministry, they need Jesus. They need to see what he's like. And what he's like is someone who truth and love coexists. 
See, Jesus spoke truth and love to every person. He spoke truth and love to every person in his ministry. Every type of rebellion, he spoke truth and love. So there were people who were ravaged by their sin. People who had made a lot of bad decisions. Whose lives were ruined. Who everyone could see, they obviously rejected God. It's obvious they did. The people that we tend to have frustration towards and to get angry towards because they keep making the same mistake. Jesus came to those people and had compassion and mercy and tenderness and care but he still told them, you need to repent. Even in his love, he said hard things like, go and sin no more. He didn't sacrifice truth when he loved them. There's also the people that he he saw that looked great on the outside, didn't do any overt bad things, people who felt pretty competent in themselves, people who felt pretty disciplined, they felt like they were a pretty loving person, And Jesus rebuked them and spoke truth to them and told them, God is not impressed by your discipline. God is not wowed by how many good things you've done. He wants to give you an identity that can't be taken away. See, he spoke hard words, but why did he speak those hard words? Not because he hated them, because he loved them. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, I've done all these great things, what more could I possibly do? And Jesus looked at him and it says, because he loved him, he told him, sell all that you have and come and follow me and then you'll have eternal life. And it says the man went away sad. Why did Jesus speak a hard word to him? Because he loved him. He wanted to give this man an identity and a purpose and a meaning and a joy, not based on him and what he's done, but based on God and what he's done. I don't know what your ministry will be. I don't. I don't know what God will call you to, but I know this. All of your ministry will involve in some form, in some fashion, at some point, speaking the truth in love. The way people around you in this church and in this city are going to be set free is by hearing the truth spoken from your mouth. The truth in love. We cannot be a church that has all of these gifts and just sits on them as we watch this church and this city be destroyed and ravaged by sin. There are people enslaved to things in your life who you know. Probably people you know really well who've never told you the things that they're enslaved to. Doubts and fears and insecurities and sins and things they've never told anybody. And they're going to tell you. And you're the ones going to speak truth and love. And Jesus says, when you know my truth, my truth will set you free. This is, we're not playing a game. This is important. Eternal life is at stake. And there are a lot of you, there are a lot of you actually trying to do this. There are so many of you, thousands of you literally, actually attempting to play your part in continuing Jesus' ministry. You're serving on Sundays. You're living life in a missional community. You're trying your best to take the gospel to the ends of this city, the ends of the earth. And you're in the mess of ministry. Can I tell you one thing? Can I encourage you with one thing? One, how thankful I am for you. That is the work of God among us that so many people at this church are attempting to be in ministry. But you need to know it's supposed to be messy. If you're in the mess, please know it's supposed to be messy. Don't let the brokenness of this world, don't let the weaknesses of your brothers and your sisters in Christ, don't let people who aren't responding to the gospel 
Don't let your own sins, your own discouragement, your own pride, your own fear convince you and deceive you into thinking that you should pull away from ministry. Deceiving you into thinking that somehow something's wrong with you, that's why it's messy. It's supposed to be. If your perfect Savior and King, if his ministry was messy, yours will be too. Your job is to look at this Jesus and stay faithful because of him. Stay faithful in the mess. Don't buy the lie. There's some way to do it where it's not messy. Not possible. It's supposed to be. And when you're in it, stay faithful and speak the truth in love. There are people in your life God's going to set free because of you and your speaking and your love. That's how we grow. Staying faithful in the mess, not pulling back. And it's in the mess when you see the, the incredible saving power of God. All the stories that you've read in the Bible that are incredible, all the stories you've heard in church history, they happened because people stayed in the mess even when they wanted to leave. Every single person wants to leave at some point in time, wants to check out, wants to retreat, but they stayed there and they remained faithful and God showed up. So for those of you who are in Christ and you're not involved in building up the church, we want you to be. Jesus bought you a gift with his own blood. He gave you a gift. We want you to use that. If you're here and you're not in Christ, you haven't treasured him yet. You haven't trusted him yet. I would love for today to be the day where Jesus' death goes from some historical fact that you know about to some truth that was for you. That his resurrection moves from some kind of ancient mythology into the reality that you have hope in every situation, through every suffering, through every evil, that one day God will make all the wrongs right and you'll be raised to life. I love for today to be that day because the great thing about following Jesus is that the first day you're saved is the day you're ready for ministry. The very first day you're ready for ministry. But the absolute best part of you actually exercising your gift, being equipped to do the work of ministry, the absolute best part is in the process you get to know Jesus more. In the process, you get to know Jesus in ways you never could without it. See, in ministry, you're going to see things. You're going to see suffering. You're going to see evil. You're going to see sin. You're going to see wickedness that totally folds you up. You're going to see things. You're going to hear stories of people being wounded that totally folds you up. Things that you don't know how to compute. Things you don't know what to say. You don't know how to fix. You're going to have those moments and you're going to feel yourself wanting to retreat. Wanting to give up. Wanting to quit. And it's in those moments you're going to get to stand in awe that Jesus was faithful the whole time. That in his ministry, every time some evil, some suffering came to him, he never ran. He never retreated. He was always faithful. He always loved. He always served. All the way to the point of dying for the people he was trying to serve. You're going to stand in awe. And what I hope happens is that in your heart something shifts where you go, not only is he king, he should be. He should be. No one else is like him. Every single person, when they see how broken we are and how broken this world is, we all are terrified to some extent. None of us know what to do or how to fix it. And all of us fail to trust God in those moments. Everyone except him. 
he never ran. He was never folded up. Makes me think of the story of Peter and Jesus when there was a storm. And Jesus comes walking up on the water. And Peter says, if it's really you, Lord, call me out to walk with you. So Jesus says, come on out. So Peter gets out of the boat, starts to walk on the water towards Jesus. And there's a storm around him. Waves are crashing. Lightning is striking. But he keeps looking at Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. He keeps walking. And he's walking. But what happens? He sees the storm. He looks around and he begins to realize, I'm terrified. He starts to sink. He starts to sink and Jesus saves him, pulls him up, goes back in the boat. One of the biggest things for me in ministry, when I want to quit, when I'm terrified, when I'm sitting with someone that I love and they're struggling with things that I don't know how to help them with, when they're not believing God's love in ways that I can't fix, I find myself wanting to run away and I think, I've been thinking, well, faith means for me to see, to, to see the storm raging around me and to be strong and confident in the Lord. But all I find in me is fear and anxiety, and I don't know what to do about it. And that story has been really telling for me is that Peter was able to walk on the water not because he wasn't scared, because his eyes were fixed on the one who wasn't scared. His eyes were on Jesus, and guess who's not scared? Guess who has no anxiety about the future? Guess who is not folded up by the evil around him? Jesus and Jesus alone. And when you're in ministry, your job is to say, focus on him and say, I'm terrified, but you're not. I'm trusting in you. That's how you stay faithful. Jesus did not ascend and give you gifts to do ministry so you could somehow prove yourself to him. He gave you gifts in ministry so you could know him more and worship him more. So you could see every time you want to retreat, he didn't for you. He was faithful, and he loves you to the very end. And when you see that and you know that, you'll want to stay faithful in the mess as well. And so Paul concludes, he concludes this thought, we're almost done. He concludes this thought with the incredible promise, the incredible promise that when all of us are doing this, when every person is doing this, the body begins to grow. Look at verses 15 through 16 again. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part, when each person is playing their part in continuing the ministry of Jesus, what happens? The body grows. So the inverse is true. If just one of you, one of you is not playing your part in ministry and building up the church, we're not growing the way we could. We're not maturing the way we could. People aren't coming to Christ the way they could. That's what the text just said. When each part's working, what happens? We're all playing our parts. We're all all playing our roles. What happens? The body begins to grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let me close with this. Please... Please dream about what you want God to do. Please whiteboard what you want God to do. Please plan it out on how you want God to use you. Please discuss it with other Christians. But please move past that and actually use your gift. Please move past that 
and actually continue the ministry of Christ in your life. Please move past that and know there are people in this church and in this city who need to hear from your mouth the truth and love. People that the Holy Spirit has given you weight. People that will never listen to me or anyone on this stage, but they'll listen to you. Use those gifts that God has given you. Do the work of ministry. Speak the truth in love and see the body be built up in love. Can I tell you, if you do this, your life will be harder. It will be. I don't know where we started preaching that following Jesus made your life easier. It doesn't. It makes it harder. But here's the promise of Jesus that you have to understand. You have to hear this. Jesus thinks that dying with him is better than going anywhere else. Jesus believes there is more life in dying with him than there is anywhere else in the world. That's what Jesus thinks. That's his call to his people. This is what Jesus exactly said. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus, he said to them, if anyone, anyone, not leaders, not varsity Christians, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The counterintuitive promise of Jesus is that if you die with him, that's the best place to be. The counterintuitive promise is there's more life in dying with him than anywhere else. See, and if something in you isn't attracted to that statement, if something in you isn't pulled by that statement, though it may be hard to hear, but something in you says, yes, it's hard to hear, but yes, I know that's true. If you don't feel that, then ministry will never make sense to you. Because God wants to use your ministry to build up the church, but more than that, he wants to use it so you can know Jesus. And if Jesus isn't what you're after, ministry won't make sense. Because Jesus is saying, Come die with me. You'll have more joy, more contentment, more life. Jesus says, come die with me. I had all my gifts, and I laid them down in the service of other people. And then Jesus saved you and called you and gifted you to do the exact same thing. Let's pray together. Father, when we think about the incredible call you have on this church, when we think about the incredible gifts you've given us, the ministry you've given us, the mission you've given us, all these things you've given us, and we look at our own lives, God, we see a great distance. God, we see this great distance between, God, who we're called to be and who we actually are. So God, what we need first and foremost, before you do anything, God, we need you to forgive us. God, we need you to change us. God, we need you to remind us that we do ministry not to be saved, not to prove ourselves worthy, not to show that we were worth it, but God, we do ministry so we can know you more. So Jesus, we can see your promise come true again and again and again that there is more life dying with you than there is anywhere else.
So Father, would you make us a people who speak the truth and love to one another? Would you bring to mind those things that we've said we do, but we haven't yet? And so God, would we look at Jesus and see his faithfulness in the mess? And God, would that undergird us? Would that strengthen us to stay faithful, to keep going, and to see you show up in power? God, use this church to advance your gospel in the city. Use this church to advance your gospel in the nations and to tell the world that this Jesus is worth it, that he's better, that knowing him and his suffering is the greatest gift we could receive. We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.